can see that. I'm assuming if you can't, somebody let me know. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna get started uh, tonight, and and where we left off last week was I got about halfway through uh, last week's notes, and there were some questions that came up, and and. I wanted, I didn't want to rush through some of the stuff that we were getting to right there at the end. And so, um, I wanted to instead, uh, just stop where we were and make sure that everybody was on the same page so that we could pick up again this week. And so where we are this week is really finishing most of last week and then extending a little bit further into, uh, some more complicated, um, aspects of, the Davidic covenant that we're looking at in second Samuel chapter seven. So you can, if you have your Bible there by you, you can go ahead and open to second Samuel chapter seven. We won't really touch too much on the text itself. We'll be in a lot of different biblical texts and those have been provided in your, um, in your handout, uh, that you, that you've got. Um, I want to just remind you real quick, if you, if, if you don't have your mic uh, muted, just go ahead and do that, uh, so that we don't get any kind of feedback or anything like that. Um, but all the verses that we're going to be talking about tonight should be there available to you in your first, uh, handout. So you can just make use of that. Um, and if you don't have that, I'll read them aloud. So, it, uh, that'll, that'll be fine. But, um, I want to review what we did last week just briefly and then talk more about uh, what we're going to do, what we're going to do this week. And one of the things that I think is the most challenging as we study the Bible and one of the areas where I think in the, just the modern church that we're the most deficient is in uh, biblical theology. And that is kind of a fancy word and maybe you've never heard it before, or maybe you're quite familiar with it. That's fine. But basically, if you can think about biblical theology as um, the way a passage of the Bible, give it any passage, connects to the rest of the Bible. So if you can imagine the storylines or the narrative of the Bible as being like a clothesline and the biblical passage or any given text that you may be in connects to that clothesline somewhere. And biblical theology is demonstrating how that passage connects to the rest of the Bible. Anytime I, I think the, probably anytime I've ever preached or, or taught anything uh, in the Bible, the most positive feedback that I ever get is when I'm able to demonstrate for the audience how that particular passage connects to the rest of scripture. And so some of you probably are, have been the ones that have emailed me or texted me or whatever um, about, about those times where, where there's a passage we read in Matthew 1 and Matthew opens his gospel with this genealogy. And you may have always wondered, why does he do that? And we talk about the lineage of uh, David's line and uh, that he uses 14 uh, generations from each little touch point through his genealogy and why that's significant. And we go back into Psalms or we go back into second Samuel or we go back into Genesis and we go forward into revelation. And you see how that passage connects to the broader biblical storyline. That is, that's what we're doing. We're doing biblical theology at that point. 
so biblical theology is immensely helpful when you study the scripture because you begin to think about not just this passage, that this passage that we're reading uh, is in a chapter and it makes sense with what's going on in the chapter and it's in a book and it makes sense with what's going on in the book, but that that book also is in the Bible and it fits in the biblical story somewhere. And somebody wrote that down at some point in history by divine inspiration to help us to understand something bigger about what God is doing throughout history. And so if there's anything that I want to accomplish in our study on Wednesday night, it's helping you to understand those connections through the whole Bible, through the Bible as a whole. And one thing that I've noticed is that when you do that, it begins to get you really excited about the Bible itself. Because what you start to see is there were no less than 40 authors, uh, obviously all under divine inspiration, but no less than 40 humans, you know, putting pen to paper, if you will, over the course of, you know, several different areas and many and a few different languages. And they're all contributing to this massive narrative that all fits together and ties in beautifully. And, um, and then you start reading the New Testament and you realize these New Testament writers, they all understood this. It was like, a, you know, like second, a second, second language to them. It was, a, it was a, you know, just a normal, they were conversant in this biblical theology. And so much of the Bible plays into everything that they're writing. And so when you start to see that, then certain books and certain references that Paul makes or John makes or whoever start to make a whole lot more sense to you. And so it can get you really excited about the Bible. But then one of the dangers or one of the, probably one of the, the, um, the biggest cautions about biblical theology is that you can quickly get overwhelmed. So you start diving into some biblical theology and you start seeing these connections and all of a sudden your head starts swimming with, uh, with all of the passages you've ever read in the Bible or ever memorized or ever thought about. And it just becomes this overwhelming, how do I even process all this information at one time? And so what my, my goal is tonight is not to overwhelm you, but it is to take you right up to the edge of the water. Uh, so that, so that just before we get overwhelmed, we stop. <laughs> and, and so if, if we can do that, then that's really good. And so what you're going to see is that tonight is going to be really divided into three sections. First is just a brief little review of what we talked about last week, which is largely around the biblical text of second Samuel chapter seven. And then the next part is talking about how that Davidic covenant that's uh, being made there, just a little bit of biblical theology as we talk about uh, what the Davidic covenant means across the Bible and how we see some, some whispers of it in the old, uh, early Old Testament and how we see some fulfillment of it later in both uh, Old Testament and, and then ultimately in the New Testament. And then, so that's, that's the second part. 
And you'll see that on, on your handout under the heading Kingly Covenant Continued. And then on the back page where we where I have labeled their biblical theology, that's where we're going to take one concept, and that is the concept of rest, and we're going to explore it uh, of how the Davidic covenant begins to help us understand this concept, uh, this biblical theology that's being developed through the whole Bible of rest. And so I want to just give you a little taste of that and to know that as we study the Davidic covenant, we're touching the only the tip of the iceberg, just the hem of the garment we're getting close to. And as we get into Solomon's temple in 1 Kings chapter 5 and, and right around there, we're going to get much more in depth and we're going to get uh, a lot more connections and filling all of this out just a little bit more. And so um, I want to kind of sort of prepare you for that now and then remind you of that later. So as we get started here, just to, just as a review, um, remember that God in the text in 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 17, God makes eight promises to David. In, and he includes several things in those promises that are really important, especially for tonight that we're going to talk about. Um, the first is making his name great. He's going to give him a people uh, and give his people a place to live, to dwell. And in that place, they're going to have rest from their enemies. It's no good to have a home if people are constantly invading it and you know kicking you out and killing you and things like that. He's going to give them a place and rest from their enemies. He's going to provide David a male offspring. I mean, that, that's just, that alone is a miracle in and of itself that for a thousand years, there is a, a male offspring, uh, well, more than a thousand years, a male offspring to, to hand down essentially the, the throne to. Now, at some point in the very near future, there's not going to be a throne to hand down uh, or a crown or anything like that, but that there is a male offspring that they can number who is uh, of the line of David is a, is a miracle in and of itself. And then establishing his kingdom and his throne forever, which, which is part of that, right? Um, so he makes these promises. That's a few of the eight that he makes there in, in 2 Samuel 7. And what we, what we also found out was that the Davidic king was going to be an expression. He was going to be, you know, one man that represented God's theocratic rule in Israel. Now, we had a question about that. I think Millie asked a question about that last week. Um, the theocracy is basically God uh, dictating the rules. We, uh, we would call ourselves a, uh, technically we're, I guess, a democratic republic, but, um, but a democracy, we're familiar with that, where the people um, sort of make the, the rules or make the, the writings. Uh, here it's a theocracy where, where God is the one dictating the rules. And what is he going to do? He is going to set his king on his holy hill. You remember that from Psalm 2, even just a few weeks ago on Sunday morning, if, you, if you're you know, following with us on Sunday morning, uh, going through the Psalms, Psalm 2 is that really coronation of David and his line sitting on the holy hill of Zion. So, so just sometime, you know, tonight or something like that, go back and read Psalm 2 and think about God is setting David up on that holy hill to be the ruler. So, so if you kind of picture this as sort of a vertical and a horizontal, God is going to establish his rule and he's going to put David 
on the throne and he's going to basically kind of rule the people through David. So he rules David and then through David, he rules the people around him. And so we see in Psalm 2 that he's going to, you know, dash the nations with, uh, you know, like a potter's vessel. He's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And, um, and so what that rule means is that he's going to give to him his law, which he has in his, you know, his, the first five books of the Old Testament. He has the teachings of, of the Lord. And he's not only going to give him that law, but he's going to expect David to live by it, for one. He's going to expect him to uh, teach people that law. He is going to expect David to judge anyone in accordance with that law. And that's part of what ruling the nations, uh, dashing them into pieces like a potter's vessel, uh, ruling them with a rod of iron is meant to give the connotation that he's going to sit on, on a, you know, a, a bench and judge the nations. If it, as an example, if someone uh, came and, and killed a relative of yours, you would expect that person to be arrested, uh, taken before a judge and a jury and to be uh, charged with the crime and then convicted of the crime if they're guilty. And then, and then some sort of punishment doled out. Well, that's one way God is going to rule the nations. But then another way is that the nations are also going to stream in to Israel and receive the teaching and the law and therefore salvation that is going to be provided through the Davidic king to the nations. So in this way, God is establishing his theocratic rule in Israel, and it's and he, he the king was to reflect the righteous rule of the divine king, and he was also to lead Israel in faithful observance to the Mosaic law, and and that goes for the rest of the nations as well. They were to come into Israel and look to Israel as an example, and then so what we this is the first little bit of biblical theology we started to touch on, and we're going to get into a little bit more tonight. God's creational purpose. So his purpose in creation, the reason that he created mankind, if you will, to establish his kingdom with his image bearer, exercising dominion. Remember, think all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, particularly chapter 1, we have that famous line where God says, let us make man in our image. Uh, and then he talks about that a little bit and he says, uh, he created a male and female and he says, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, let them rule, basically let them have dominion. So that was God's creational purpose. And he's establishing his kingdom with his original King, Adam, who's sitting on his throne in the garden of Eden, as it were. And he's exercising the dominion of God across all of creation. And and so now with David, that kingdom is being established with here, his image bearer. We see Psalm two, he says, uh, you're my son. Today I have begotten you, his image bearer, exercising dominion. And it now reaches that stage when David is declared king that we're starting to get really close to God actually accomplishing this, establishing his kingdom once and for all. This is something to get really excited about that, that God is, is finally to the point. We're now at the point in, in history where God is establishing his kingdom. 
or so we, so we think. And so uh, that leads us into to continue where we were uh, uh, last week, so, or to pick up where we were last week. All right. Um, Jacob, you'll remember, if you dig all the way back in your memories, all the way back to Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. I know you have that memorized by heart, and uh, you, you probably use it devotionally, I'm sure. But if you'll remember uh, that there's a scene at the end of Genesis where Israel is about to die. Jacob is about to die. And he is going one by one through his sons. And he is blessing them and he is prophesying over them. Well, when he gets to Judah, remember Judah is not the firstborn, but he gets to Judah and he prophesies that the scepter would belong to the tribe of Judah until the coming of the one whom such royal status truly belonged. He says this in Genesis 49, 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So this is that first little whisper that David's coming. This is that first little whisper for us in the, this side of the cross that Jesus is coming. So we get that, that idea. We go all the way to Genesis 49, 10 and go, Jacob prophesied. So even David sitting on the throne and ultimately Jesus sitting on the throne is a fulfillment of prophecy. Um, but so there's, there's Judah that's set up. And then, you know, inside that, the Davidic covenant then becomes the foundation for all the prophecies uh, about the Messiah that would come later on in the prophets. All of them, that's what we call messianic prophecies. There's just prophecies about the Messiah. Uh, that would come about later in the prophets. And so you're going to hear, you're going to read through the minor prophets and the major prophets, and you're going you're gonna to see them regularly referring to the Messiah coming and all of this. And, and that understanding that you would be of the tribe of Judah, that the, the, the scepter is not going to leave the tribe of Judah, that the Messiah is going to come in and be a, a king, uh, necessitates he be from the tribe of Judah which makes Saul there as a Benjaminite, not from the tribe of Judah, but from the tribe of Benjamin, all the more strange. You'll remember Saul was the one that uh, the people really picked, that they, um, they demanded a king. They didn't care if he was from the tribe of Judah. They, God gave them exactly what they, what they asked for. Um, but the point is that the throne of David was a representation of the throne of God itself. And you even see this in 1 Chronicles 29, 23. And there, there's several other passages like this, but you'll see it. He says, then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord. Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of David, his father, and he prospered and all Israel obeyed him. So you have an example, you have examples in scripture where the throne of David is considered the throne of God himself. Like we said, this is a theocratic rule. God is ruling the king and he's expecting the king to then rule the nations and extend that dominion across the, really the face of the earth as it were. But even though that's the case, the Davidic monarchy was always just a shadow of a greater future reality. And the reason we know that is because 
Well, to be as simple as possible, David died. There was no way David was going to sit on the throne forever. Solomon died. And uh, as, as good as David was, he made some tragic mistakes. As, uh, as you know, wise as Solomon was, he did some foolish, foolish things. And his children after him, Rehoboam is, you know, is wicked and divides the nation. There's so many others after that, that, that are just, um, that are terrible, horrible people. And so even though the Davidic monarchy was established and promised, and there was some hope in it, it always remained this, ah, it's not quite there yet. It always remained this, there's potential there, but, we just haven't, we haven't really reached it yet. And, um, and so it always remained this, this shadow of a greater future reality. And so because the monarchy eventually began to, you know, like I said, slide into wickedness, you'll see that the prophets begin to pick up on the fact that the, the Davidic covenant um, was not fulfilled that the promises that God made to David didn't end with David. And they, they really weren't even fulfilled with David. In fact, they were kind of just opened with David. And so the, the prophets in the Old Testament are really now looking at the prophecy of Jacob as he dies and says, you know, the scepter will not, not pass from Judah. They're looking at, at, at that and saying, well, we saw that in David and while we, we might have hoped or thought that that was it, that we had reached it, now we're realizing, no, 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 no. This is, this is, there's, much, there's much, something much greater to come. And it's not going to be until the end of time that we find that fulfillment. What the prophets don't fully understand is that, there were, that, that the fulfillment would come in two phases that it would come in the first phase, which we see in Jesus dying on the cross and rising again on the third day and ascending into heaven. And then the second phase, which would be when he comes back a second time in, we, we see that in you know, the book of Revelation and several other places referred to in, in the rest of the New Testament. So the way I've always thought about that, and, and oftentimes what you'll hear the, the prophets doing is they'll talk about the time when the Messiah comes and they'll just talk about those two phases, Christ dying on the cross, phase one, and then phase two, him coming back a second time. They'll talk about it as one phase. And maybe I can demonstrate this on the computer a little bit better. Um, it's kind of like, like this. If you're watching, if you can see my screen, but you're, you're watching to, or you, if you can see me, I don't know if you can or not. I'm, you probably can't. But uh, two people walking down a road, and um, one is in front of the other. And when they're far enough down the road, you can't really see how much distance is between the two. In fact, they might look like they're side by side. And the closer they get, the more you realize, oh, there's actually some space in between them. There's some distance. There's 10 feet separating them. One's trailing behind the other. But from down the road, they, they look like it was, they were together. They were walking together. That's kind of how the prophets are looking forward at the Messiah coming. 
they see all the things that he's going to do, take away the sin of his people, and he's going to, you know, get rid of all wickedness. And they're seeing that as one event, but not realizing that there's some distance. There's what we're at 2000 years almost now and counting distance between those two phases. And so that's why sometimes you can read the prophets and it sounds, it's really hard to understand. And you ask like, is he talking about Jesus coming the first time? Is he talking about Jesus coming the second time? And the answer is kind of, yes. Uh, It's just the way that they're, they're looking at the future fulfillment of the Messiah, that it's, it's sort of, they see it as one ball altogether, but we, we feel it separated by 2000 years. If that, I hope that helps, but that, that's kind of the way that I, I tend to think about it. I think it makes the most sense. So the prophets were teaching that David's booth, uh, that is David's house, if you will, the, the, the covenant that is set up with David, that his booth is going to be repaired. So the kingdom is destroyed after Solomon and the Jews are going to be ultimately hauled off into Assyria and then Babylon. They're not really going to take possession of the land. In fact, to this day, they really still don't have full possession of the land. And uh, it's going to just be constant strife for them. And so David's booth, his house, is kind of torn apart after him, after Solomon. And the prophets are looking forward to when the Messiah comes, they're going to restore the house of David. They're going to build it right back up. They're going to, they're going to restore David's booth. And the child that's going to be, that's going to come about is going to establish David's throne with justice and righteousness. So there we have that, that Davidic king who's going to sit on the, the, the hill and he's going to, he's going to rule the world with justice and righteousness perfectly. Uh, he's going to do this. Um, he is going to be a branch from the stump of Jesse. And what that means is he's going to be of the line of David. He's going to be of the line of Jesse, David's father. He's going to, he's going to be um, of the stump of Jesse, and he's going to create an ideal kingdom, the perfect kingdom, the kingdom where you'll see uh, uh, Isaiah talk about the child playing over the adder's den and not get not bitten, the lion laying down with the lamb. He's going to create the kingdom where there is zero hostility, not even between animals, not even between uh, man and beast. There's going to be such peace in his kingdom and that, that, he's, that he's going to establish. That's the kind of kingdom he's going to come in and, and usher in. Um, so he's going to be of the stump of Jesse and he promises that, um, uh, and the, the promises that had not yet been fulfilled would be fulfilled in the future. All the things that we're missing with David are going to come to fulfillment in the future. And what we see ultimately is that these messianic hopes, the hopes of the Messiah, that they're going to be fulfilled in Jesus the true son of David. And probably you're already starting to think about that. Probably you're already going, wow, yeah. You can see how Christ came and he instituted a certain kind of peace uh, in the cross. He reconciled us to God. That's one kind of peace that he made with his cross. Um, he reconciled us to God. That is first and foremost. Without that, we're, we're going to hell. Then he also reconciled us to each other 
Remember, Paul says in Ephesians, uh, Jew and, there's no more Jew and Gentile. There's no more uh, slave and free. There's no more uh, barbarian and Scythian. There, there's no more division inside the body of Christ. He's the head of all, and we're united in him. So he has torn down all walls of hostility. So he has restored a vertical relationship. He's created vertical peace between you and God. And he's created horizontal peace between you and each other. Think about that in relation to that kingdom we're talking about that God was going to establish through the Davidic king. He was going to rule through that king sitting on his hill and then spread out from there horizontally. So vertically, he was going to put his king on the hill and then horizontally, he was going to rule the nations. Christ has done that in his cross. He has established that kind of peace already. It's already done. He's already done that. So when you think about the cross of Jesus, resist the temptation to think about it as uh, insufficient. We wouldn't say that probably about, about Jesus' cross. You know, we would think that that would be anathema to say that. But we think that sometimes. We think about Jesus' cross and we go, yeah, it was, it was great. You know, he gave, he gave us forgiveness and all that. But what I'm really waiting for is, and we look, we look in the future for his return. That's true. We say with John, come Lord Jesus. We want that to happen for sure. But don't discount what happened on the cross. It is very clear. And the, the rest of the New Testament is very clear. What you are wanting in the world to come, Christ has given you already a foretaste of in the church, in his people. He has given you a restoring of relationships where there's no more class system in the church. It's gone. There's no more class system in the church. There's no more slavery in the church. It's gone. It's disappeared. It's, It's vanished completely. There's no more hostility between you and God in the church. It's gone. If you're in the body of Christ, it's gone. It's completely gone. Um, so what you're anticipating, you can in some ways already experience now, which is a tremendous feat. And if you stop and dwell on it long enough, uh, I think you will be truly blown away by how much Christ has actually done for you in the cross and how much he's already given you some of what you're wanting to be true in the end. Now, is there complete uh, hostility eradicated between uh, sinner and Christian and those inside the kingdom and those outside? No, there's not. Evil has not totally been eradicated. The sin inside my own own body has not been eradicated yet. The sin inside that makes its way from our body inside the, the church family has not been fully eradicated yet. And we're waiting on that that day still to be fulfilled. But don't discount what Christ has already given to us. He's given us his Holy Spirit that we might obey and please the Lord. And we can actually live together in some small foretaste of the way we will live together in the new heavens and new earth under a real physical uh, presence of Christ reigning with us. So, so think about that, what, what God has done in the cross, and then anticipate what he's going to do in the future. If you have any questions, type those in the box, in the chat box, 
Uh, I'll see them. Are there any, Blake, at this moment? Uh, not yet. Okay. Well, if you have any, you can type them in the chat box, and, and I'll, I'll do my best to answer them if I can. Now, let's dip our toe in just one concept of biblical theology, and it's this idea of rest. And it's a very important biblical theology. So so if you think about just, again, that that metaphor of the clothesline, uh, starting from Genesis all the way to Revelation, there's a clothesline called rest. And it runs throughout the entire Bible, and various passages of Scripture are going to hang on that clothesline, and this is one of those passages. Um, there's a lot of clotheslines that this passage hangs on and you'll find that with some passages, but, but, but this is one of those clotheslines is rest. So there's a clothesline of rest and, and, uh, yeah, the clothesline of rest and this passage is clipped onto it. Um, and, uh, so, uh, it's, it's a really important theme and what we're going to, what we, what you'll remember probably, uh, your, your, foundational concept of rest goes all the way back to the first pages of scripture. And you, most of you probably already know what I'm talking about. When God created the world in seven days, well, six days, I should say. And then on the seventh day, he rested. So from the very earliest pages of scripture, we have God resting. Now we know God didn't rest because he was tired. He was establishing for his people an understanding of rest. I want you to think about this for just a second. Um, We have 365, technically 365 and a quarter days in a year. And we have that because that's the amount of time it takes for the earth to pass one rotation around the sun. We have 24 hours in a day, which is the amount of time it takes for the earth to rotate on its axis one full turn. We have uh, roughly 30 days in a month varies, but roughly for the different phases of the moon to go around the earth. Why do we have seven days in a week? The only reason it's not cosmological. The reason we have seven days in a week is creational. It's because God created the world in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. God established a seven-day week, and we adhere to this day to a seven-day week. Um, And he established for his people that seventh day being a day of rest where they would stop from all their work and they would live in complete rest in in solitude. They They wouldn't work. Now, think about what that means for a Jew, by the way, who runs his business, who... um. You know, let's say he has a fishing business or so, some such thing, and he he makes it. He is living hand to mouth. He goes out on the sea, catches his fish, comes in, sells them at the market, gets money. That money buys the bread for the next day. Um, if he doesn't go out in the boat, you know, he better catch a lot of fish. If he doesn't go out in the boat, he doesn't have money. So, what is that resting on the seventh day? pausing from work, actually doing for that Jew. Well, one, it's setting him apart from the rest of the world around him. That's for sure. But then it's also 
um, communicating, it's reiterating to him how dependent he is on God. And his obedience of resting on the seventh day is communicating to the Lord his trust that God is going to provide for him enough on Friday to last him through Saturday. And, I mean, really Sunday, if you think about it. Uh, because he's not able to, to, you know, he has to make enough to provide for Saturday and then really has to make enough on Friday to last him through Sunday so that he can make money on Sunday and eat on Monday. So he's communicating in that seventh day of rest. Look, the rest of the world is working. Everyone else is working seven days a week so that they can eat. And here I am, a poor man, a poor Jew, and I'm giving up that seventh day trusting that the Lord is going to provide. He did this all the way back, even outside of Sinai, when he provided manna in the wilderness, he provided enough on Friday to last through the Sabbath. But any other day where they tried to collect extra amounts of manna to last maybe another day and sneak in some extra portions, he, it spoiled. But he, he preserved the manna to last through the Sabbath. He's reiterating again, I'm going to provide for you. Um, so you, you even get this in, uh, in when they get into the land, the seventh year, they're supposed to let the land rest every seven sevens, every seven, seven year periods, they're supposed to let the land rest for seven years. And it's that same concept of Sabbath that they're supposed to rest completely and let the land rest. And that's all established from the seventh day when God created the, the world, but there's more going on here. Um, there is significance all the way back in the Garden of Eden when God places Adam in the Garden of Eden. It's the, the look at um, in your verse packet there, Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 15. It should be on the uh, third page, on the last page, Genesis two fifteen, And it says, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, to work it and keep it. But the word that the biblical author, we think Moses, used there instead of put, it's not the typical word for put. It's the word that's typically translated rest. The Lord rested him there in the Garden of Eden. So what that means is that the Lord had worked six days On the seventh day, he rested and he welcomed Adam into that rest by placing him in the Garden of Eden where there was no sin, there was no hostility, there was no enemy, there was no uh, anything bad. Adam is there in the garden and he is in fully enjoying the rest of God. That is the pinnacle of of rest that we see on that side, on the Old Testament side of the cross. That's the ultimate rest we've got there, is Adam in the garden. What what gets more restful than that? Even when he works, he doesn't sweat. Even when he works, the land yields its produce. When he works, it doesn't uh, hurt him. He doesn't wear out. His back doesn't ache. Um, When Eve has children, she, well, she didn't have children that side of the fall. But had she had children, we presume by the punishments, it wouldn't have been painful. Uh, 
the Lord, one of the punishments he gives to Eve is that in pain shall you bring forth children. So, um, so, so that's the ultimate rest. There can't be a, a better rest that side of the cross than, uh, than the Garden of Eden. And so he welcomes Adam and he rests him there in the Garden of Eden. Um, and in the rest, Adam is to faithfully perform his task of working and keeping the garden. That's his, that's the commission that he's given. You're to exercise, Adam, you're to exercise dominion over the earth and take this rest that I have given to you. You are to spread it out over the, over the entire earth. And, uh, he said, he says that you, you'd be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and have dominion. So Adam, the, you will, the, the image bearer of God, the kingly authority, the son of God is to exercise dominion and spread that dominion around the earth by spreading God's kingdom uh, and welcoming people into God's rest. Or I guess you would say really birthing them in uh, Eve, birthing them into God's rest. And they were going to always be there. What we also see, though, is right after that, Adam fails in doing this. Why? Because immediately in in Genesis chapter 3, we see um, that evil serpent make its way into the garden. He was crafty. uh, Adam was to exercise dominion over the beast. But here the beast is outwitting Adam in the garden. Adam is to exercise dominion over the beast. And a Jew reading that would go, snakes are unclean. Snakes are not part of the, 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 the kingdom of God, so to speak. And so Adam should have driven this thing out, and he doesn't. Um, and so, you know, there we go. Right out, right out of the gate, this serpent is working its way in. And Adam has failed already in working and keeping the garden and spreading this rest of God around the earth and now what we have is a beast taking dominion over adam or trying to take dominion over adam and so even though adam fails at doing this god promises israel that one day he will have rest or she will have rest from all her enemies look at genesis twenty-two seventeen. think about genesis 22 where does that occur that is abraham's story that's still within abraham's story Genesis twenty two seventeen. he says, he promises Abraham this, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring. What does that say? That sounds like Adam, doesn't it? Will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, meaning that he will come in and he will drive out his enemies. And what will he have then? Well, he will have rest, right? That, that's the promise. But then we go further into Exodus 23, 22, and he says, but if you carefully obey his voice, this is Moses talking to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So there, there's this promise that you will have rest, you will have peace, I will drive out your, your enemies before you. The, these enemies will be gone. And then what do we see? Second Samuel chapter 7, um, 
Second uh, Samuel chapter seven verse eleven says, "From the this is God making the covenant with David, and He says, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, um, and I will give you rest from all your enemies." So you have this correlation in the Davidic covenant. God driving out the enemies before Israel is equal to giving them rest and giving them a land and driving out the enemies before them is giving them rest. Um, So this is a a tremendously important concept already being established, even as far back as Abraham, Adam fell, but listen, Abraham, I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to restore this rest. And then what does he promise David? Uh, Rest is coming. All right, I'm going to drive out your enemies. Oh, rest. So as soon as the Jewish reader hears this, their ears are going to perk up and they're going to say, oh man, rest is coming. This is, this is terrific. Um, so the children of Israel then come to associate entrance into the promised land with, uh, with entering into God's rest where they would be free from said enemies. And uh, you can see that there, Deuteronomy 12, 8 to 11. And I see a question from David Maxwell. I'm going to get to you in just one second. Um, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that, uh, that you present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. So they're starting to associate already because of the promises in Deuteronomy when we get into the, the land, that is where we're going to see rest. Um, da- uh, David Maxwell asked the question, how was Adam to know that the serpent was unclean and did not belong in the garden? Um, the answer to that is, uh, well, some of this we have to presume, I think, a little bit in the text. But um, the answer seems to be the fact that the serpent is causing him to question the command that the Lord gave him. The Lord said, uh, do not eat from the fruit, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for the day you eat of it, you will die. And the serpent says, you will surely not die. The Lord knows you will become like him in that you will know the difference between good and evil. And Eve was persuaded by it. She saw that the, Tree was what? Good for fruit and profitable to make one wise. Meaning that what she was doing was not just saying, oh yeah, I mean, it's, it's good food, but she was actually following the logic of the serpent. So Adam and Eve were both to know that the serpent was not to be uh, in the garden for one, uh, certainly not uh, getting into a logical debate with them. Um, so immediately, they are, to, they are to understand, I have dominion over you. You don't have dominion over me. This is what God gave me and appointed me to do. You're not to be here. You're to be out. Um, we know that this is part of the, the theme 
that's being opened up, one of the clotheslines that's going through here, uh, through the Bible, because in the end, uh, we see the garden that the that Christ establishes in the new earth is that he has the gate open and no unclean thing will ever enter it. That's what he, John says in Revelation. No unclean thing will ever enter it because he's going back to Genesis chapter three and he's saying they're de- they're, uh, there's Adam in the garden and an unclean thing entered it. Well, Jesus is going to be in the garden and no unclean thing will ever enter it. So John is kind of closing that, that loop. He's the other post on the, the clothesline, so to speak, um, is happening there. So Adam is, Adam is to know that. But so the, the children of Israel are associating uh, the entrance into the promised land with uh, rest that the Lord is giving. They're anticipating this. They're expecting this to happen. So when David is there in the promised land, what are they thinking? Oh, here we go. Here comes here comes rest. And when when I hear I'm getting rest from all my enemies, that, that's a tremendously important thing. Um, but I want you to notice something else in this Deuteronomy passage. Notice that they say, you know, when you cross over the Jordan, he's going to give you rest from all your enemies. And then what happens after that? They're starting to worship. That's what, that's what he says uh, in 11. The place that the Lord will choose um, you're going to, to make his name dwell there, we're hearing temple, right? That We're hearing Jerusalem. We're hearing Mount Moriah. We're hearing that's where the temple is going to be, where the Lord chooses to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all uh, that I command you, your burnt offerings. Your so the Lord gives rest. He makes his name dwell there. They begin worshiping the Lord where he dwells, in his, in his house. Remember that. Rest followed by worship of the Lord. It's really important to understanding what happens to David. So, um, so here, here we go. We, we're, we got this promise. We're getting into the promised land. But the children of Israel under Moses failed to enter into the rest due to their unbelief. That was that first generation that took a lap around the desert and died off for 40 years, right? They, they failed to enter that. How do we know that? Well, because Hebrews chapter four, or sorry, excuse me, Hebrews chapter three, verses 16 to 19 tells us that. He says, for this, the author of Hebrews says, for where those, uh, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they will not enter into his rest, God's rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter the rest of God because of unbelief. So the, that first generation, they don't enter into the rest. They don't cross over the Jordan. They don't get into the promised land, enter into the rest. Why? Because of their unbelief. But then what the author of Hebrews actually tells us is that Joshua also failed to give them rest. Why? Well, they're in the promised land. They crossed over the, the Jordan River. Why didn't he give them rest? Remember, he didn't drive out the enemies all the way. They didn't drive out the rest of the enemies. God told them he would. 
You step on a battlefield, one man will drive out. I think he says a thousand or something like that. One man is going to drive out a ton of people. And I'm going to drive them all out. Just step on the battlefield. And they don't. They don't drive them out. So they fail. They also fail to enter the rest. Joshua also fails to fully give them their rest. And uh, we see that in Hebrews 4, 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken that another day later on would, would, would come is the implication. Um, so Joshua fails. Israel fails. They don't enter into that rest. But then um, once the nation of Israel was in the promised land and David was established on the throne, there were two pieces that were fundamental to, to the Lord giving them rest or to them, them finding this sort of fulfillment in the promised land of God's kingdom. One was that they would return to this Edenic rest in ages past that we saw in Adam. They're going to return to that Edenic rest, that rest that they had in Eden. They're going to return to that by what? Eradicating their enemies. That's one. And drive out the enemies. And dwelling in the land with the Lord. So the Lord is going to dwell there with them and they are going to eradicate their enemies. What do we see in 2 Samuel 6 and 7? David, actually 5, 6 and 7. David walks into Jerusalem. He drives out the enemies, the, the yep, people that are there in Jerusalem, drives them out. Then he drives out the Philistines. He drives out the enemies. And what do we find in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1? It says this. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Okay. Point one. Got to eradicate their enemies. David goes and eradicates the enemies. In fact, he says the Lord had driven them out. Perfect. The Lord's driven out the enemies. He's given us rest from our enemies. Okay, we're getting close to Eden, all right? Now what does David want to do? Build a house for the Lord so that the Lord can dwell with him there in the land. That's why he celebrates so much when the Ark of the Covenant comes into Jerusalem. Now he's really pumped because the Lord, his presence is here. And so we are moving back to Eden, all right? The promised land is becoming the the, the Garden of Eden. Uh, the enemies are going. The enemies are fleeing. The Lord's driving them out. And he is dwelling with us as he dwelt with Adam in the Garden of Eden. This is great. We are hopeful. This is really going to happen. But it goes even further than this. Because David is like, Lord, I want to build you a house. And God tells him, no, that's not going to happen. Your son will. So we know then that Solomon is going to come in and he's going to build him a temple. We're going to talk about this when we get to Solomon. I just want to give you a little precursor of what's happening. I don't, not to overwhelm you or get, but just to get enough juices flowing, I hope, hopefully. Solomon is going to build a temple to the Lord. And what we're going to see in the temple that Solomon builds is a ton of images straight from the Garden of Eden. There's going to be flowers of gold. There's going to be stones. There's going to be beauty. There's going to be all kinds of things that he uh, crafts there. 
And Solomon, at the beginning of his reign, is even going to be described in very similar terms to Adam. Because there is this picture in now that we have a house that the Lord is going to dwell in, with us, in the land, we have reached Eden. That's the, that's the hopeful expectation. That's the anticipation right there at the beginning. Now, we know it doesn't turn out that way. But what we do see is that, that once they see that temple, now they're, they're really feeling like, wow, uh, here we go. We, we, are in, we are in the Garden of Eden. We have the king on the throne. We have the temple, uh, the very presence of God. What more are we lacking? Um, so it appeared that David and his offspring, Solomon in particular, um, that, that in those two, God was fulfilling his covenant promises right then and there to reestablish his kingdom. It's not until after the kingdom is destroyed that the prophets start to realize, oh, we, we were short. We came up short. It's going to happen one day, but we, we came up short. It's going to happen when the Messiah gets here. Well, what do we see when Jesus comes? John tells us, um, we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father. Matthew tells us uh, he was of the line of David. Uh, John is then going to tell us he uh, took on flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. We are going to see that Jesus says, reiterates to them over and over throughout the gospel of John and, and all the other gospels too, that he's the temple of God coming to dwell in the land. Jesus is taking on the actual physical embodiment of God dwelling there in the land. However, he's also the king. He's not only the king and he's not only the temple. He, he's also um, the, the, the Messiah, the one that's going to die for them. He, he's not only all of those things, he's also the priest who's going to take their sins before the Lord. He's going to die on the altar and he's going to serve as the high priest, uh, offering atonement for their sins. All of these things are going to come to a head in, in Christ. So if we, if we were to look at, a, at the, let's say the, our clothesline always hung in the backyard. So look at the backyard of the Bible. We're going to see like a thousand clotheslines opened up from Genesis all the way to Malachi. The New Testament authors are going to see all those clotheslines come into one in Jesus and finish out the rest of the Bible. And they're going to show throughout the New Testament how all those clotheslines come into one line in Jesus and find their fulfillment in him. And so uh, Israel, like Adam, is now subduing the nations. This is another reason why they're really anticipating. They're really hopeful. Not only do we have a king, but we're subduing the nations. We're accomplishing this, this uh, reigning and fulfilling and, and spreading out God's kingdom around the earth. We're subduing the nations. So we're enjoying rest from our enemies. Um, Israel is dwelling securely in their land, giving rest from their enemies. They're experiencing God's blessing uh, and presence as well as the blessing of the nations. So uh, Solomon gets gifts brought to him. I'm going to go ahead and write all those down. Um, but 
they're experiencing the blessing of the nations. Solomon is giving gifts from the nations as they stream in. They recognize his wisdom. They are coming and recognizing his God uh, as David and Solomon drive out the enemies. They enjoyed the, their status as God's treasured possession. Finally, they're enjoying that. Um, they are a kingdom of priests that was promised to them all the way back in Exodus. They're becoming a kingdom of priests right there uh, where they are. Um, what that means is that they are not only are they a kingdom, but each one of them functions as a priest to the rest of the nation. They're showing the rest of the nations how to follow the Lord. So the nations are streaming in. They're showing the, the nations, look, here's the temple. Here's how you serve in the temple. Here's how you become a good Jew. Here's how you follow the Lord. So they're becoming the kingdom of priests that the Lord promised all the way back in Moses. Now, it's all going to get torn apart because of idolatry. However, in the end, Jesus is going to become the anticipated king, bringing both peace and dominion to his people. I want to close with just a few passages right here at the end of your, your verse handout that helps you see this. Hopefully, this helps you see this, what Jesus is doing. Look at Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. That's the first one I want to look at. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what Jesus is offering is not only a future fulfillment of a kind of rest where there is no enemy, not even our own flesh is our enemy. He's offering a, a, a first time rest right now that you can have right this very moment rest for your souls, which is the greatest of all needs that we have before we can even get to eternal life. We have to have rest for our souls. And what Matthew tells us at the very beginning through the angel is he has come to save his people from their sins. That's how they receive rest for their souls. Jesus is saying, I've come to give you rest. What is he talking about? He's connecting all the way back to all this whole clothesline of rest that's running through the Bible. He's hanging himself right there on that clothesline of rest. And he's saying, me. Actually, he's the post holding up the clothesline, if you will. It's me. I'm the one doing it. I'm going to give you rest. But then look at what happens in Revelation. How does this come to about? He says, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And he's talking about the wicked, okay? And they have no rest. These are people that bow down to the beast. They have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for endurance of the saints. Those who, what do they do? keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Those who continue to believe, what do they get? Heard a voice saying from heaven, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. What does that mean? That means they maintain their belief all the way through death. He says, blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. They believe in the Lord. They maintain their belief all the way through death and their deeds that they did for the Lord follow them. So they have final rest. Why? Because they believed. 
Why didn't that generation that was following Moses not have rest, enter into rest? Oh, yeah, because of unbelief. What is the Lord doing now? What is Jesus doing right now? He is the new Moses leading his people through the wilderness out of Egypt, out of the yoke of slavery, of sin, and into the promised land. And what do we do to cross the Jordan River to enter into the rest? We obey. We maintain belief. All the way through to the end. Till death. And the deeds of of obedience follow us. Assuming that's true. But then look at what Peter is telling us in the New Testament is true of us that follow Jesus. First Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You Gentiles, you were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he made you all those things that he says there, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession. Where did he get those things? Where did he come up with those things? He got them from Exodus. It's where the children of Israel are gathered around Mount Sinai. And God says this in Exodus 19, five to six. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. There are, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So he's telling Moses, tell this to the children of Israel. If they keep my covenant, they're going to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. They're going to be a kingdom of priests, me. And then what does Peter say of the, of the church? Jesus has done this and he has made you a holy nation, a royal priesthood, that you would be children of the most high. You are, you are his treasured possession. The people in Christ are his treasured possession. And maintaining faith in Jesus through to the end leads us to the promised land. So this, where we, where we have actually true rest. Questions? No questions. I'll give everybody just a second. I'm going to get out of screen sharing. Hopefully everybody's got those. Uh, if you needed any of those, um, let me know. I have a question. No question. Go ahead, Sean. Yeah, this is uh, about rest and and, uh, and Eden, right? So uh, I think I'm going to understand what you're talking about. Rest is sort of like uh, our our perfect fellowship with God. Yep. Um, so uh, before the fall, what did the seventh day look like in Eden? Was it different? From the other days, or how was it, or, or, or do we know? I don't know. I, I, we, uh, we don't know, but I, I, I think this is where biblical theology kind of helps us, probably, is um, that we can, we can have a probably pretty good educated guess on it. And what that would mean would be that, like, Adam would work six days out of the week, and on the seventh day, he would stop his labor, uh, trusting that the Lord was going to provide. Um, we don't even know if he made it seven days. Yeah, I mean, there's a decent chance that he didn't. Yeah, I've wondered that too. We don't know how long. 
Right. So, but, but, but probably... And so on one, and so sort of two ways to think about rest, I guess, right? I mean, there was rest from this uh, being in fellowship with God all the time, and then there was some sort of additional element of rest on the seventh day. Well, package them together. Bring them together. Um, when you stop working on the seventh day, what are you saying? I have complete fellowship with the Lord. He is going to provide everything for me. You're perpetuating your, the idea of that continuity between you and the Lord, the Adam experienced. Um, and when you work, so, so let's take it into a New Testament era. Um, we see that in Christ, we have rest. Okay. Rest has been fulfilled. So there, there, this is where you'll get some debate between, uh, you know, Sabbatarians who say, Hey, on Sunday, we stop doing everything that we have ever done. And we only go to church and that's it. And then you'll see some people that are not strict Sabbatarians, more like myself, who, who are like, I don't think that's what that means. Because when, when it comes to a, a Sabbath day, yes, it is, it is good to rest. It is good to rest the day that God has established that from the beginning of, of creation. However, my rest is the kind of rest that the Bible is laying out is fulfilled in Jesus. Even when I work, I am resting from sin. I have freedom from sin. Uh, I have uh, uh, basically every kind of freedom and every kind of rest there actually is to be had is available in Christ. And I have that seven days a week, not just on one day. And, uh, and, and so Christ has fulfilled that. Now, will there be a day come where I don't wear out and where I can labor and no labor is in vain? Yes, that will happen. But, but for a Jew, it's not, it, it's the sixth, the seventh day was supposed to, yes, say you are resting from your labors and uh, you, but, but all of that is just testifying to what you believe the other six days of the week that the Lord is providing for you, even in your labor and that I am in fellowship with, with God and in such intense fellowship that I stop as he stopped. I work as he worked. And, um, and, and, and so does that make sense? They're, they're, they're packaged together. It's, it's sort of one ball. Yes, hopefully that makes sense on it. Yeah, I hope it does. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think, yeah. Um, uh, so, like before the fall, then when Adam uh, rested, I mean, it, it was nothing really different from days one through six, but it was just sort of following in God's footsteps, so to speak. Sure, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It wouldn't be any different in the sense that he would, uh, he would, uh, he wasn't tired from the other six days. Right. Uh, his back wasn't sore uh, from the other six days, and he wasn't worried. But um, different in the sense that he's following directly in the footsteps of the Creator. And that, that's, I guess, what it mean, what I mean by one ball is that this six days the Lord worked on six days. So me working on six days is the same kind of fellowship as the seventh day where I stop working. So it's that same kind of continual fellowship.
which, which you can see, if you read the book of Jeremiah, you'll see why them not letting the land rest in the seventh year was such a big deal. It got them kicked out of the land and it got them kicked out of the land for exactly as long as they did not let the land rest. God was taking them from the land, letting the land rest. So read the book of Jeremiah. He spells all of that out, that you didn't let the land rest for these number of years. Well, you're going to be kicked out for that number of years because I'm going to let the land rest. It's, it, it, it undermines everything that the Lord was giving to them uh, from the very beginning was I'm giving to you my, my, my providential care and you're rejecting it because you don't care. You're, you're idolaters. You've dug your own cisterns, so to speak. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Any other questions like that? It's good stuff. Um, I would. There's, there's a, there is a book that I would recommend that um, if you're interested in biblical theology, um, and I am. Uh, right now I'm trying to find it here um, that is called well there's two books really one is called kingdom Th- uh, kingdom through covenant or there's a shorter version called God's kingdom through God's covenant God's kingdom through God's covenant by uh, Wellam and Gentry that's a that's excuse me that's a really good one then there's one called the story retold a biblical theological introduction to the New Testament, the story retold. And that one is by Greg Beal or GK Beal and somebody else. I don't, I don't remember who the other one was. Um, but the, the second book, the story retold goes through each book of the New Testament, gives an outline of that book, gives a uh, how some of these big themes are coming to fulfillment in these books, how the biblical authors are tying in these big themes in the Bible. Um, it's the second one in particular, the story retold is written in pretty accessible language. Uh, and you, it's not hard to read and it wouldn't be something you'd probably sit down and just read the whole book all at once, but it would be something that you would have as a reference when you study a book of the Bible it is wonderful. It's a very helpful resource. The story retold. Very, very good. So I recommend those highly. There's a lot of good books on biblical theology that can really help you tie in some of these, these loose ends that are very, very helpful. So, and if you ever need a recommendation, I can always give you one. So. All right. It is uh, time to go. Well past time. I'm sorry for going so long, but um, let me pray for us and get out of here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time to get together. We thank you for a time to, um, to take in more of Scripture. Uh, we pray for your wisdom to be given to us so that we may understand, that we may grow, uh, that we may know more of who you are. May we see more of what you're doing in Scripture. We love you and we thank you for everything that you give to us, do through us, and um, in spite of us. In Jesus' name, amen.